Welcome to the Free Retiree Show. My name is Lee Michael Murphy. I've been in wealth management for the last 10 years right in the heart of the Silicon Valley. People have always asked me, how do I achieve financial independence? And while the financial world wants you to believe it's as simple as investing your money, I'm here to tell you it's a small piece of the puzzle. I've seen four consistent factors in the people that have achieved financial independence. One, they excel in their career. Two, they manage their money properly. Three, they're able to avoid devastating financial mistakes. They can see through the BS. And lastly, they understand they need to learn from the best, the people that have achieved success in their career and their finances. Join us on our journey as we learn how to become free retirees. Welcome into the Free Retiree Show, your go-to podcast talking all things career, money, and business. I'm here joined alongside Silicon Valley's favorite attorney, Matthew McElroy. What's going on? And I'm your host, wealth manager, Lee Michael Murphy. Career advisor, Sergio Patterson, is off today. I was just going to say, no search today. He's a lazy bum, but yeah, couldn't get him on today. But It's uh, the first time he hasn't been here in a while. I know, but we don't need him. We got this. We got this. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we might. <laughs> we might. We might. Welcome into a business and thought leader edition. This is the part of our show where we interview folks who have accomplished amazing feats in their career and are changing the world with their ideas. For today's episode, we're going to be discussing the concept of creating value. If you are a business owner or thinking about going into business, what type of business model are you using? And what's the best type of model? To help you generate profits and grow your business. And if you're working for a company and you are concerned about how you increase your value and potentially get paid more, what is your route there? For today's episode, we're interviewing world-renowned expert in value pricing, Mr. Ron Baker. Ron is the founder of Verisage Institute. He's a radio host on the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy. He has written seven books, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, I said that seven. And between 2011, 2020, he's been mentioned in the top 100 and top 10 most influential people in the accounting profession. And he was inducted to the CPA practice Hall of Fame in 2018. So, Maddie, this is a great one. You're an attorney. You're all about, you know, billing by the hour. I mean, we read about what Ron's doing. Like, what's your thoughts on this one? I'm really excited to hear about it because, you know, the billable hour pretty much ruins my life most of the time. <laughs> I, I, I pretty much hate having billable hours. <laughs> so if we can move away from that model, I, I would be very happy. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy concept, right? For you know, certain professions, they're so entrenched in the way that they've done business. To go away from that almost seems crazy. So, Well, and if you look at it too, like, trading your time for money is not the best model. You know what I mean? There, there's other ways to do it where you can add more value and, and have more revenue and stuff like that. You want to get away from that model and have the money work for you rather than you trading your time for money. It's just, in my opinion, there's, there's a better way. Exactly. So if you're in business, if you're working for a business and you are concerned about how to grow your value, grow your profits, this is going to be a wonderful episode. We're going to go a quick break, but before we do so, make sure you smash that like button, share us. If you have questions for us, financial related, career related, legal related, or even a question for Ron, send them to ask at the free We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, we'll be sitting down with Ron Baker.
Welcome back into the Fruits Tyree Show. We are sitting down with the one, the only, Ron Baker. Ron, how are you doing this morning? I'm great, Lee. Matt, thanks for having me. Man, we are happy to have you. So tell us, first question, being inducted into the CPA Hall of Fame, what the hell is that like? I mean, it sounds like a prestigious honor, but do they take your calculator and they raise them up into the rafters? Like, give us the, the, the deal with that. It's actually a magazine that's published and widely read within the profession. And they have a thought leader group. And once you get in there, then those thought leaders then vote every year, I think it is, for an inductee. And my name came up. I mean, I kind of feel like Groucho Marx and part of a club that I don't really want to be in because it had because it had me as a member. I don't know if I'd want to join a club that would have me as a member. But still, it's an amazing feat. And you're kind of known as the man that talks about creating value. So give us an idea of the books that you've written and things that you speak on. I started my career as a CPA in a big eight in San Francisco. And I left that firm and started my own. And I learned really fast at Billing by the Hour was a lousy customer experience. And I was studying Disney at the time and Nordstrom and other service leaders that had world-class you know, customer service. And I wanted to emulate those companies. So we just moved over to fixed pricing or value pricing. I didn't know much about it. There was nobody on the circuit talking about it to professionals. There were no books. So I started doing it in my firm. And that led me to want to teach it to my colleagues led me to want to write a book about it. And so I published my first book, The Professional's Guide to Value Pricing in 1998. That book went through six editions. That book was sold around the world and sold 40,000 copies, which is kind of interesting because it was a $150 book. And that book kind of started this whole journey off. And my mission ever since has been to kill the billable hour and the timesheet amongst professional firms, so law firms, accounting firms, IT firms, anybody who billed by the hour, we're kind of in our target space to help to remove this, what I think is a toxic business model. Matt, do you have any comments on this? 100%, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I totally agree that it can be a toxic business model. I mean, I, and I, I agree with it. It's not, it doesn't help the customer. It hurts the customer a lot of the time. So Ron, let's go to the basics. Let's talk about value-based pricing, which you're a expert on, but also let's talk about what cost plus pricing, which I think is the ugly sister to value-based pricing. <laughs> so. Right. That's right. <laughs> well, a lot of people think that costs determine price, that businesses add up their costs. They might add a little bit of a profit margin, and then that's how prices are determined. So there's a story in the news every day that says, oh, well, the cost of labor is going up, or the cost of coffee is going up, or the cost of burger, steak, or meat, or whatever is going up. And then we expect that's going to filter through the system and raise the price that we pay at the cash register. That's not right. Costs do not determine price actually value determines price. And so when you think about a transaction, when you think about walking into say a Starbucks and buying a $4 latte, you walk in there, you look at the menu, you decide on the cup of coffee you want, you order it, and notice that you didn't really sit there and think about Starbucks costs as a customer. You think, well, I hope Starbucks is pricing that cup of coffee high enough so they earn a profit. No, you were probably noticing the ambiance and the music they were playing, maybe talking to the baristas, whatever, other patrons. I mean, you weren't thinking about their costs. So you go up, you get your coffee, you hand the person at the register $4, and they hand you your cup of coffee. 
Now, that's a very interesting moment in time in a transaction because that's the double thank you moment. Notice that we both say thank you. What does that mean? Usually, if I give you something and you say thank you, I, I would say something like you're welcome. But nobody says you're welcome. We both say thank you. That means we both profit from the transaction. And what that means is that cup of coffee I bought this morning had to be worth more than $4 that I paid for it. Now, you can say, well, how much more? I don't know. It could have been $4.10. Could have been, it could have been worth $4.50 to me. It could have been worth $20 because I'm hungover from last night and I, I knew I had to be here this morning. It doesn't matter. As long as I voluntarily walked in there, it had to be worth more than $4. That's really interesting, you guys. That means that every transaction, think about this, every transaction can only take place if the buyer and seller disagree about the value. If I'm trying to sell you my house, I have a very high opinion of its value. You might have a lower opinion of its value, but we can still agree on a price, even though our value judgments are completely different. Starbucks values your $4 more than the cup of coffee, and I value the cup of coffee more than $4. So both sides make a profit. That's the original win-win. Both sides profit from a transaction. And when you think about that, when we talk about profit in the business world, we only talk about the business's profit. We never talk about the consumer profit. The consumer profit's not measured. It's not in our GDP. It's nowhere to be found. And yet it's the basis for all economic activity and the basis for growth is that exchange process. And so that's what we have to really clue into when we're thinking about pricing is what is that cup of coffee worth to a customer? And that's where value pricing comes in. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. What are some of the flaws with cost-based pricing? And who's an example that might use that sort of model? I'll give you another example because I live in the wine country. There's a great winery called Farnante, and that's Italian for do nothing, which is probably why <laughs> I like it. And they sell a particular vintage of a Cabernet Sauvignon. And I, it's reserve bottled. It's a state bottled. So they only make so many cases, very limited production. And now, this is pretty expensive wine to begin with, Farnente, like you'll pay $300 or something for a cab. This particular cab is even more than that. It's like $200 more than their regular cabs. Mm -hmm. And I finally took a tour of Farnente many years ago, and the guy brought us down to this barrel room where they had like 12 barrels, and he said, this is where we bottle this particular wine. Now, I'd been buying this wine six, seven, eight years prior to me taking this tour and paying this enormous premium. And I'd give it as a gift and people really enjoyed it. And it's a beautiful bottle, beautiful label. People make candles out of it. So it's a great gift to give. And the guy was explaining, he said, see, we have to bottle this wine by hand. He says, so we have to pay people to come down here, stand at the barrels and fill the bottles by hand. We can't use our automated corking equipment because we, because of all these things that I didn't understand. They have to cork by hand and we have to ship it in different packaging. He said, all of this costs more. And that's why this wine is more expensive. And everybody at the, on the tour nodded their head, right? Cost drives price. And I didn't want to ruin the tour by giving this guy an economics lesson. But the fact of the matter is, I didn't know that there was additional cost. All that mattered to me was when I either drank the wine myself or gave it as a gift, people really loved it. And so it was worth it to me. So what was really going on there 
is I valued the wine high enough to pay the winery a price that justified them spending those additional costs. Price justifies costs. It does not drive costs, do not drive price. And because if costs drove price, you guys, no business would ever fail. It doesn't take a brain surgeon or a rocket surgeon to put a, a price above a cost, right? You tally up your costs, you mark it up with some profit, and you put a price on it. Well, but then why do businesses fail? Because they don't produce things of value. So the chain runs value first, then price, then cost, and, and the customer's at the front because the customer determines value. So kind of a long answer there, Lee, but I no, hope that made that's sense. That's a great answer. Though. No, no, that, makes, that, that was a good answer. It totally made sense. And that's the problem with companies that, that use cost plus pricing. It, cost plus pricing, if you think about it, looks inside of a company and says, what are our costs? What are our efforts? What are our profit motives? What, what, how much do we want to make? That's the plus and cost plus. That's inward looking. But value is completely determined by the customer right? Value is completely subjective. I'll give you another example. If you think about a bottle of water and, and you were to think about the three com combinations of a transaction, the value, the price, and the cost, like we talked about with Starbucks. Well, okay, the cost of that bottle of water, Pepsi knows that. Coke, whoever makes bottled water knows what it costs to produce a bottle of water. What's the price you pay for that bottle of water? Well, stop and think about that for a minute. That's interesting because if you buy it at Costco or Sam's Club, you're buying it by the pallet. It might cost you, I don't know, 10 cents a, a bottle, right? If you buy it at a Safeway or other grocery store, it might cost you a little bit more, 20, 25 cents. If you buy it at an uh, airport, if you buy it at a hockey game, if you buy it at a mini bar or a vending machine, it's going to cost Damn. more. It's the same water. Mm -hmm. It's low in all those locations. It doesn't cost much more to get the bottle of water to those various locations, but the price changes radically. But forget about price and cost for a moment. What's the value of a bottle of water? That's a fascinating question because if I'm in the desert and I haven't had water for four or five days, what's that bottle of water worth to me? I'll pay everything I've got. I'll go into debt. I'll turn over all my wealth because now that bottle is going to save my life. What if I'm home washing my dog with the same quantity of water? Now what's it worth? It's worth a lot less, right? What if I'm flooded in my basement with water? Now it's got a negative value. I have to pay somebody to come out and pump it out. So value is completely subjective. And therefore, we should try and understand our customers, what they're actually accomplishing with our products or services, and price according to the value. Now, that might mean we have to segment our customers into different groups like they do with airlines and hotels, first class passengers, business class, coach, whatever. But there's ways to do that and try as best you can to align your price to that value. Because I know if I'm washing my dog, the water's more valuable than if it's flooding my basement. And the price should reflect that. And that has nothing to do with cost, by the way, right? Because again, getting that water to the dog or the basement the cost is the same, but the value to the customer is radically different. And therefore, that is what affects the price, not the cost. No, that's phenomenal insight. What comes to mind when you're giving that example was like sporting events, Disneyland, like Great American theme parks. Like how much is the water there? It's like $10. Yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? it's, like, 
Vegas. Yep. <laughs> has nothing to do with the cost at all. Yeah. I'll give you guys a great example. Several years ago, I think it was back in 2001. It's it's in my book, Praising on Purpose. Coca-Cola came out to, it was like the, the South American version of the Wall Street Journal, CEO of Coke. And he was explaining these new vending machines and he was all excited about it. So he made a big blunder by going out and talking about this on the record. And he told the reporter, he said, yeah, we have these vending machines that we're putting in public places in the States, like racetracks, Daytona, amusement parks, those outdoor vending machines, they have thermometers in them. And when the temperature rises outside, the digital price of the Coke goes up. Oh, no way. Coke on a hot day. Now, there was so much blowback from the press about this. Pepsi came up. I'm sure the first reaction Pepsi had was, damn, why didn't we think about that? (laughs) But but they said, well, what's Coke going to do next? X-ray your pocket and charge whatever's in your pocket for the Coke? But those machines are out there. Wow. Kind of smarter if you think about it. It's like a Coke is worth more when you're a Daytona 120 degree day or whatever. Now, from a pricing perspective, what would have been smarter for Coke to say the framing, how a price is framed has a big impact on uh, how it affects customers. So, for example, if Coke would have said the price goes down when the temperature drops, everybody would have been fine with it. Mm. that's oh, that's so true that's a great point it's all about like the presentation of the, the you know the, the value there we don't like to pay premiums that's why when a hotel like in a resort area that like a ski area that has uh season off season they'll always quote from they'll always discount from the on peak the peak price right but they never add a premium because you're in peak season that the peak season is the standard price. And then they discount off that when you're off season say, and that's perceived as more fair, even though the economics are the same, but how a price is framed has a big impact on whether or not your customers are going to get blowback or not. Remember when Amazon was caught charging different prices, I think it was for CDs and maybe books to various based on zip code. So if you were living in Beverly Hills and they knew that from the zip code, then that you, you had a higher price than somebody else in a lesser income neighborhood. And you even see this with computers. I mean, they tell me that Mac users are charged more on travel websites and airline websites because the companies figure out that, hey, Mac users are less price sensitive overall and are willing to accept higher prices. And that is true. They do that. Well, and Macs are kind of a little more expensive usually than some of their window counterparts. So <laughs> yeah, like five times more. <laughs> <laughs> so so they think that those people got money. That's the logic. Yep. So Ron, let's talk about the businesses that are really caught up in that other model, the cost plus pricing model, and they want to always lower their their price to compete. You know, we're seeing websites like Groupon, Living Social, and a lot of business, what they do is say, oh, well, we need to get on there so we can get people in the door. We need, we, we just got to give, make people feel like they're getting discounts. Now, is that a mistake in your opinion? Like, what do you think of that? Yeah, I'm very leery of Groupon. I do, re- I do recognize that there are businesses that try and be lo- the low price leader. And you can find them in every industry, H&R Block in in accounting and tax, say, you can look at Southwest Airlines, right? Southwest Airlines pricing model is not comparing their prices to other airlines. That's not what they compare to. They compare their prices to 
the cost of you driving or taking the bus. That's who their real competitors. Think about Walmart. Walmart squeezes every dollar out of the supply chain it can and then passes those costs onto the customer. Low prices every day. I mean, their whole, I think their purpose is something like to raise the, the living standard of people. And if I'm spending less on staples, then I have more to spend somewhere else, right? So that was, and there is a place for those businesses in every sector that it's, there's three macro, we think about this from a big picture perspective. There's only three pricing strategies. There's penetration pricing where you go in and you deliberately try and be the low price leader relative to your value offering. The companies I mentioned are excellent examples of this. Walmart has the penetration pricing strategy. The goal is not to move in with a low price, put everybody else out of business and then jack up the prices. No, the goal is to stay the low price leader. I would have to say that Amazon has filled that role. They came into the market with books and they were, now they weren't the cheapest. There was books.com who was even cheaper than Amazon, but they eventually went out. But Amazon is relatively cheap, I would say, for most things that you buy. Amazon makes all its profit from the cloud service, AWS anyway. So their penetration pricing, and there's other examples we could think of. Then there's neutral. There's a neutral pricing strategy where you try and take price out of the decision. Think about Toyota doesn't talk much about the price. They talk about the quality of their cars, the experience. They talk about the lifetime cost of ownership. They, in other words, they do everything they can to take price out of the picture. Their price is kind of aligned with other car companies' models that compete with their models and all of that, but price isn't the big decision. So neutral pricing strategy is the default strategy of most businesses. That's sometimes because the company doesn't think about their pricing strategy and they go after everybody. And if you're doing Groupon and all these other things, then I don't think you have a clear strategy because I don't think you can be all things to all people. The problem with what Walmart and Southwest is doing with a penetration pricing strategy is there's only a couple of businesses in every sector that can stay alive in the long term with a penetration pricing strategy. It's a very difficult way to run a business. Now, Walmart's great at it. Southwest Airlines, great at it. But try and compete with Southwest Airlines. A lot of companies have, and they've bombed out completely. It's a very difficult market. So I'd rather have a neutral pricing strategy. And then, of course, the third pricing strategy is the skim pricing. That's when you go into the market and you, you skim off the cream because your value proposition is so well known or so well built, deserved. The value of your products are so high. Apple. FedEx, Nordstrom, all the companies that you, Disney, that charge premium prices use a skim pricing strategy. They're not trying to be all things to all people. And if I could, I guess, convey one lesson to business people, it would be this. Stop trying to be all things to all people. That's not a strategy. To, to have a strategy, you've got to kind of conf narrow your confines and, and really narrow down on your customers that you want. You can't be all things to all people. There's a great line from the CEO of Porsche. He says, if there's two Porsches on the same block, that's one too many. Porsche doesn't go after market share. There's a big difference between right. going after market share and going after profitability. Porsche and BMW don't have big market shares. In fact, their market share is like a rounding error. <laughs> you look at Toyota, Volkswagen, GM, all these other, but 
they're also the two most profitable car companies in the world, bar none. But they have market shares that are minuscule. That's because they know their customers, they know them really well, and they constantly put out products of value and their prices reflect that. I know every company's got a different model, but I think like if you're a smaller company, I mean, trying to compete with Walmart, Disney, all those other big companies that might be the, well, maybe not Disney, but Walmart, definitely they're going for the low cost. It just seems like it would be a massive mistake in the business model. It's really hard. I mean, Walmart has it's destroyed a lot of Main Street businesses, but I would argue that it, it, Walmart didn't destroy them. The customer did, right? Millions of people, I think something like 50 million a week go to Walmart. They do it voluntarily, and they're the ones that walked away from the Main Street small business. I mean, I'm not being, trying to be a mouthpiece for Walmart, but if you want to be a small business, you're going to have to figure out ways and things to do that Walmart can't do. What is your competitive advantage? And it's not even a pricing question. You're still at the strategy and positioning level. And that's why it's easier to narrow down on a specific segment of customers. So like whether you call it niching, like we do in the professional world, but really know what you stand for, because the fact of the matter is you can't be all things to all people. You had somebody that's starting a business and they're, they're looking at, they want to do something with a subscription-based model and they have a product in mind. What, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, I'll give you an example. In 1996, a guy I think named Howard Moran, he was the Sonics NBA team doctor and he was a general physician as well in, in, his, in his, his day job, if you will. And he knew so much about those players. They'd get injured out on the court. He'd run out there. He'd he'd know exactly what to do to get them back to playing healthy. And he sat down one day and he said, I know everything about these guys. I know their family history, their medical history. I know what kind of injuries they present with. And I know what to do about them. Why can't I do this with my patients? I've got a general practice. But I don't know anything about my patient. Well, it's because he has 3,000 patients. The average general physician in the U.S. has something like a panel of patients between three and 3,500. That's why they spend a, a sum total of five minutes with you when you go in. And, and half that time, they're looking at the screen, typing in into your electronic health records. So in 1996, this doctor forms MD Squared, and it's the world's first concierge medical practice. He says, I'm going to scale my practice from 3,500 patients down to 100, maybe 150. I'm going to charge them a premium price, but there I'm going to do everything that I'm capable of doing for them under my roof. I'm going to give them concierge medicine. So for, say, a family of four or five, two, wife and uh, husband, two or three kids, it might cost you 25 grand a year now course he went after ceos and high-income people right but when you booked an appointment with him or he came to your house or your office you were the only one i mean they would literally lock the door behind you you were the only one in his office and he would be able to spend a lot more time with you do a a more thorough uh, diagnostic do a more thorough family history if you needed specialist care he would refer you to a specialist and he would quarterback that relationship he would walk over to the oncologist's office with you for the test results that type of thing and now that model concierge is finally starting to take off and it's all subscription based so today i think you can go on to dpcfinder.com dpc is concierge models baby cousin stands for direct primary care 
there are over, I think there's close to 2,000 DPC doctors now, and they're in every single state in the country. And for anywhere from $79 a month, maybe up to $200, maybe $300 a month, you can subscribe to a general physician. Now, a general physician can handle 80%, 60 80% of your health problems, unless you have some type of chronic disease or something. But what's great about this, guys, is I'm, I'm subscribing to my doctor's firm, my doctor's company, and that means they'll not only treat me when I'm sick and get me healthy, they're going to keep me healthy. So these DPC doctors have such better relationships with their patients because they have fewer of them. They're not in that whole fee-for-service rat race where they're charging you for every test, every procedure, every visit. You got to go to the department of paperwork and fill out things in triplicate. No, no, they know all about you. They've been doing telemedicine. They've been doing virtual visits. They'll do home visits, office visits. Some will fly to you on a vacation, whatever. And you think about this and what's the value to the patient of that type of relationship that I can call up my doctor, text him a picture of, I don't know, a rash or something or a cut. Is this infected? Should I worry about this? Do I need to come in? It's that peace of mind. It's that convenience. It's that frictionless. That's what I'm buying from a doctor. I'm not buying services. Nobody buys services. No, nobody buys a drill. I don't want to own a drill. I want a quarter inch hole in my wall. And if I could figure out a way to rent a drill for five minutes, be able to you know get that quarter inch hole there, I would much rather pay for that. So it's not about ownership. There, there's an albatross to owning things, right? I own a car. It's, it's idle 95% of the time. I have to repair it, maintain it, oil change, all this, oh, all this just crap. If I can subscribe to a car and they take care of all that, then I just get to drive it and go from place A to B and have fun and maybe display my ego or whatever, depending on the brand I choose. So the subscription economy is all about convenience, access, and being frictionless. Just remove the bureaucracy from the customer, make their life easier. And most businesses do not do that. Most businesses are set up for their procedures, their functions, their paperwork, their silos, and it's just a frustrating experience if you're a customer. So subscriptions, removing that friction. I mean, think how easy it is if you're a Prime member, even if you're not, but if you're certainly, if you're a Prime member on Amazon to order something, it's one click, you're done. And it, com- mm-hmm. it comes sometime the same day, sometimes the next day or two. And this, all, this worked all through the pandemic. That It's because it's frictionless. Amazon has designed everything around that customer and just to make it really easy. And by the way, Amazon is starting to get into direct primary care. And when that happens, that's going to change how this country buys medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's going to be a complete game changer. So going back to implementing value pricing. So say you're this company and maybe a small company and you've been, let's take the mechanic shop for the example. Maybe we're putting out coupons in the magazines, offering $75 an oil change, $200 a tune-up, and that's how we're getting our clients. We realize we're not adding value. We're not adding reputation or goodwill to our business, and we want to change how we do it. We want to change it, and we want to make value-based pricing the way we run our business. Where do we start, and what can we do? Well, and mechanics are pretty good with this, and and so are like, you know, oil chain shops or whatever. First thing I would say is offer options. Always offer options. It's one of the easiest 
pieces of low hanging fruit you can grab when you're moving from say cost plus or hourly billing into a value pricing mode is offer the customer options. Does the customer want to use part, a new part, a rebuilt part? That can be an option that a mechanic could offer. And that kind of takes care of the range of the value perception of the customer. Some customers are really price sensitive and they don't want to spend a lot of money for whatever reason. Other customers want the absolute best right? Because they're willing to pay for it because they know it's going to break down less and they don't want to come back to the mechanic shop frequently to get this thing fixed. So they're willing to pay for the new part, but offer them options. I I think where the the conversation gets really interesting is if that mechanic shop, if it specialized, it'd be in a better spot. If it only did Mercedes Benz or BMWs and Porsches or something, or Teslas maybe now, it would be in a better position to have a little bit more pricing power, right? Because it, it specifically knows about the the customers that buy those types of cars, if it's more of a general service, well, we can fix anything type shop, then that's a little bit trickier. They're going to have to offer options, always give the customer choices. That's one of the easiest things they can do. One of the things I'm fascinated by is why can't mechanics offer subscribe? Why can't I subscribe to my mechanic and just say for X amount, he'll handle anything. Now, they could exclude some services. They could carve out, well, if it's your transmission, and no, that's not covered, blah, blah, blah. For most things, they could cover on a subscription basis, and that would give them that annual recurring revenue, even if I didn't use it. And if you think about the insurance market for a minute, which is a pretty big worldwide industry, something like $3.3 trillion last time I looked, we spend on insurance around the world. We buy this product, but think about the psychology. We're thrilled when we don't use it. I'm thrilled I didn't uh, you know, file an earthquake claim this year. I'm thrilled I didn't file a life insurance claim, a disability claim, but I pay all these premiums because I want that peace of mind. I want that protection for the worst case scenario. And that's kind of what you see going on with concierge, direct primary care medicine or subscription model in general. I'm never going to sit down and watch everything on Netflix. No way. There's too much content. I, I, I spend the rest of my life and not even get through 10% of it but I know it's there if I want it. That's a very interesting psychology. Now, I'm not saying that you need to have a digital library like Netflix and have tons of content. I still think subscription can work in a one-on-one relationship like a doctor. Doctor is the old, yes, I can do some things online with my doctor, but he can't pull my stitches out. I'm going to have, it's like you can't have a virtual barber, right? That's a one-on-one relationship. You're going to sit down in a chair and they're going to cut your hair. But why couldn't they, why couldn't you subscribe to your barber? So if I was going to a wedding, I'd say, hey, can I come in right away and you can give me a trim or do my hair up really nice to, to, for this event? And he, the barber would always have capacity for its subscription-based customers to be able to handle you on those last-minute calls. That's where the opportunities with your business model and your pricing get really exciting and can really drive profit. And it just seems like doing that business not only the smart way, but I feel like it gives you better clients, better customers. I, I mean, you're getting people that I see the value. I mean, just as you're giving these examples, I'm like, I want that. I want that. I would pay extra for that because that just seems special, right? And, and I think you would get a better type of customer versus the person that waves their Groupon in your face and be like, ah, give me my discount. <laughs> give me my half offer. Lee, that's such a great point. I, sh- I should and I should have made that, but I'm glad. I'm so glad you said that because if you attract a customer based on a low price, guess who's going to be the least loyal? <laughs> that yeah. customer. Because when they find it for a dollar cheaper, 
they're going to go down the road to them, right? They have no loyalty whatsoever. It's what, one of the things that used to really piss me off about the telephone companies and the cable companies. Who'd they give all the deals to? The new customer. Well, if you're a new customer, you get six months for free. I've been with you idiots for 10 years. What have you ever done for me, right? Yeah. And now, to their credit, AT&T is saying, no, we're giving this deal to both new customers and our loved existing customers. And finally, these guys woke up because I'll tell you, an existing customer relationship is somewhere between three and seven times more profitable than going out and chasing a new one. Because to, ch- to get a- to land a new customer, I've got marketing costs, I've got acquisition costs, I've got learning curve costs, I've got all these costs. But when I have an existing customer, I've already got them, so no marketing, no none of that. I already know about them, so it's easier to work with them. They're already less price sensitive because they know me and are willing to buy more for me, maybe higher priced or higher value things for me. Uh, it's just more it's much better to put your time and energy and focus into existing customers than going chasing new ones with Groupon that aren't going to be loyal at all because they're going to run off to the next deal when they find it. Yeah, you're creating all that value for the customer. And what are they going to do? They're going to tell their friends, their family, and you're going to get more business that way because you were focused on value versus the price. Just let me give you one more example on the subscription today through a program called Porsche Drive. I think it's in 11 cities around the country. It started in Atlanta. You can subscribe to a Porsche. Now they have three different options. You can subscribe to a single model. You can subscribe to their multi-model plans. So let's say for 30, I think the top tier is like $3,500 a month. You subscribe and you have six or seven models to choose from and you can switch out unlimited. So I can say, hey, I'm driving this convertible. This is really cool. Hey, Porsche, I've got some uh, family coming out. We're going to go wine tasting. I want one of your SUVs. They white glove out an SUV, white glove away my convertible. I spend the weekend in this SUV, drive around. Then Monday after everybody leaves, I get my convertible white glove back out. They take away the SUV. Here's the thing. Porsche pays for everything except tolls and gas. They pay for insurance, maintenance, if I need a tire, if I need an oil change, just come out, pick it up, drop one off. There's no friction here whatsoever. And people say, well, how's this different from buying or leasing the car? Because it's not tied to a car. I'm subscribing to Porsche. That's a different psychological relationship. I can't even wrap my head around the psychology of what makes it different for me buying a Porsche to subscribing to Porsche, but it's huge. And they've been running this program now, which has been wildly successful. 80% of the people who have signed up for Porsche Drive are new to the brand. My question to you guys is, what are those people going to be driving for the rest of their lives? Porsches if they can afford it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've already proved they can afford it because they've, they've jumped that hurdle first, right? Unless something dramatic happens in their life. But Porsche has the same problem that BMW and even Harley Davidson. They've got an olding, older, graying demographic that are dying. Literally, there's no other way to say it. And they have to appeal to a younger group. Well, this is appealing to that younger professional that just wants a hassle-free car and maybe a wall pallet of hassle-free cars. I think it's a great example because it also shows that what you're talking about with giving them options. 
because I think that's one of the, the, the hugest, yeah. or to me, one of the most attractive things about it is like, oh, I can go drive like seven different Porsches. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's awesome. Going back to at the beginning of what you said, if you want to create value, give them options. That's perfect. Yep. And even law firms can do that, Matt. So you can have different, you can have different options with your services and law firms, accounting firms offer different options. You might have an option that says, okay, we'll do your tax return. But at the next level, if you're audited by the IRS, will represent you and that's covered as part of that option price. That's just one simple example. Yeah, have you ever seen like firms, uh, like uh, law firms where they would go and they would do something where they treat it kind of like almost like a health premium where you're paying your premium each month. And then once you spend like a certain amount, you like hit your deductible kind of, then it's covered or like, or even like something that is where, you know, there, there's like, a, I guess like a cap, you know what I mean? On how much they could spend or like a reduced, billing hour maybe after they reach a certain amount something of that nature yeah i it, not those things that you mentioned specifically but i think before we went live i was telling you about a firm in, in australia that actually is a litigator for some companies they sit on their what they call their panel of lawyers that they use that to represent them in court like an insurance company because they have so many cases and most cases in those examples are pretty much somewhat they're 90% predictable right they're going to settle blah 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 and he just says look for $350,000 a year we'll take as many cases as you throw at us so they're not doing specific hours for sure but they're not even counting a number of transactions they're just giving uh, a fixed price spread out over a portfolio now, some of those cases might be more complicated than others some might sell really quick with one phone call but you know what we're looking at the portfolio we're not analyzing each you know it's like a life insurance company right not everybody's going to die in the same year we're looking at the portfolio and that's what is kind of built into the pricing around these types of innovative pricing models like that or with like concierge medicine yeah, I would, I would imagine you would have to have really, you know, strong system, internal systems to be able to have that model work. Um, you, you would. And you would, you'd have to, if you think about a doctor too, or any business like Porsche, I mean, you have to be very narrow in your scope of the type of cases and clients that you take on. I, I truly believe firms, in fact, I, I would say all businesses are defined by the customers and products and services they don't have. Because again, you can't be all things to all people. Now, Walmart might be able to be all things to all people, but even it's not, right? You've got to really select and be very specific about who you want to serve. It's really hard to be all things to all people. You pay a complexity tax for that that, that is very expensive. Yeah, actually, to my own experience, when I started in the financial business, I was I did all things financial. And I didn't, my business didn't grow that well because I don't think I differentiated myself. I didn't think I became an expert in specific spaces that added value. So now today it's retirement planning, company retirement plans. That's it. So people ask about the other things and I'm like, nope, no, I don't do that anymore. But unless a customer is like, well, I really need this. And I want you to write my life insurance because I had this bad experience over here. And I'm like, all right, I'll do it. But it's not like what I normally do. But I saw from that change, my business really took off. And I was able to add more value just by focusing on those niche or niche areas. So, yeah. yeah that's I, a, I, I'll tell you, the, the, the most profitable CPA firm I know is here in the Bay Area. 
And the guy does nothing but dentists. Anybody who's not a dentist, he refers to one of my other CPA friend colleagues. He just does dentists, but he's been doing this for so long that he knows everything about a dentist's life cycle. So he goes into dental schools and talks to them about how to buy into a practice, how to start a practice, whatever happens over the course of this dental's uh, this dentist's career, the arc of their career. They get divorced. They want to shove a partner out. They want to bring in partners. They want to open different offices. They get disabled. They need other dentists to come in, fill in for them for a period of time. Whatever happens, he's seen it a million times. So he's got everybody on a subscription and he just covers anything they need. Whatever yeah. happens to you, if I need to come in and help you with this or that, we just do it. You're covered. You're covered. And that's just, that's peace of mind, that's convenience, it's frictionless, and he does really well. And, but, but he knows his customers. So like you said, Lee, it makes it easier to know when to say no. It makes it easier for your team to be educated on all the apps and the software because they're only dealing with one industry. They're not trying to be all things to all people. Ron, let's pivot. I want to talk about the lowly employee or the person that may be working for the company. want to increase their value. It feels like, man, I'm doing my job and I get I get my hourly pay or maybe my salary is really tiny and I haven't been able to negotiate a higher pay, but I'm valuable. Like I know what I'm doing for this company is extremely valuable compared to what I'm getting paid. So how does that person start on their journey to becoming a more valued asset to the company that they work for? It's a great question and keep some things in mind. First off, I would say keep in mind that the value of your employeeship to your employer is, is subjective. They're making a judgment that you're going to be able to add more to their business than the full cost of paying you, which is the social security, the uh, workers comp, the whole burden, whatever your salary is, multiply it by 1.3, maybe 1. 25 here in California. And that's probably what you cost your employee or your employer. So you've got to provide more value from that. Now, some of that value may be measurable. You may be out there driving sales. You may be in customer service, creating great service for the on the front lines. But a lot of it is, is what I call spiritual value. And what I mean by spiritual is not religious, but spiritual is it can't be measured, right? It's there. It's kind of like the it's kind of like dark matter in the universe. We know it's there, but physicists can't measure it. And that is your attitude, your professionalism, your eagerness, your willing to teach, train, mentor others, your willingness to stay late, your willingness just to chip in, do what's needed, even if it's not quote unquote your job. If you do those types of things, I think the bar is so low among other employees who are just there to put in their time and get their check that you'll stand out. And if it's a good employer, they'll recognize that. If they don't recognize it, remind them, go tell them. Because when I think about being an employee, I don't think about being an employee. I would say to the employee, you're your own business. When I'm an employee, I'm Ron Baker Inc. And my job is just like when I'm Ron Baker self-employed. I want to add value to my customers. Now, in this case, I've only got one customer, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that customer happy and to deliver value, go above and beyond, do things outside of the scope, take on new projects that maybe I've never done before that are risky, that I might completely screw up, but I'll learn, right? Climb down that learning curve. And when you do that, 
most employers, especially these days in tight labor markets, really a, a good employee stands out and they'll reward it and they'll reward it pretty fast. And if they don't, confront them with it, show them, tell them, remind them of all the projects you've worked on, all the things that you've done for their business. And if they still say no to a raise, well, then think about exit because that there's nothing that raises your prices more than being willing to say no and being willing to have exit. And now not to use threats and I've got another job offer that's twice what you're paying me. Don't make up threats like that. It'll come back and bite you in the butt. The world's too small and what goes around comes around. But if they're not treating you well, then shop your value because again, value subjective. And if you look at the way that Netflix pays, if you read the book, uh, No Rule, No Rules Rule by Reed Hastings, they pay market wages so they might have a VP of whatever, and they go out on LinkedIn and they look at various reports. What is the average, what, what do these people make in other companies? And if they're not paying, they pay that plus 10%. So they pay above market because they want the best people. That gets that keeps their turnover low. It keeps the, the people highly motivated and all of that. And now you can't get your employer to do what Netflix does, but you can constantly search and know your worth. And that's going to give you a certain level of confidence when you do talk to your employer about possible raise or promotion. Yeah, I love that. A lot of times when you're the employee, your value can be very subjective. You can say like, well, I did a good job here and here. Upper management can say, yeah, you did, but you messed up here. So where's your true value? And that's the sort of conversation I've seen at different companies is where it's, well, are you valued by you're not? And everyone's got a different opinion. So and now that you brought it up and I never thought about it like this way, but how do you quantify your value? And are you writing it down of what you exactly did and measuring it? I think is also something that can be very valuable to the regular employee, like, you have to get dig a little bit deeper into exactly how you bring value and measure it. But again, there's a lot of spiritual value too. just your attitude, your professionalism, things that can't be measured. I and you brought up like performance appraisals. If there was one thing I could kill in the business world would be this annual performance appraisal. This is like kabuki theater. It, it is completely useless. It's absolutely demotivating because it's designed to point out problems yeah they might tell you three things you lee you did really well on this and this and but then they'll tell you one thing or two things that you, you completely screwed up on or bombed out on well this is known as the sandwich approach right and it's like that's like taking that's like taking a dollop of dog poop and putting it in your favorite ice cream what are you gonna take what are you gonna taste right <laughs> your mind is gonna stay on that negative uh Com those negative comments and it's demoralizing and it doesn't they don't help you improve future performance i think a much better tool for small businesses is to do after action reviews so after particular projects or big projects you sit down just like the army does after every mission and ask yourself four questions what were the objectives on this mission what actually happened <laughs> Right. Because like the army says, we make plans, but then the enemy does something that completely surprises us. So there's always a gap between what we expected and what actually happened, the ground truth, 
is what the Mike Tyson put it. Everybody's got a plan until you're punched in the face, right? <laughs> and then the third question is, what were the positive and negative aspects of these differences, right? We set an objective. Here's what actually happened. So we came up short on some things. We may have, may have exceeded expectations on other things. So there was good and bad with the gaps. But why, what were those good and bad gaps? Why did they happen? And then the last question is simply, how can we do it better next time? And if you take the time to actually step back after doing work and reflect on what you've done and what you've learned, you'll actually, that will improve future performance going forward. And most businesses don't spend any time on that because we, we're too frenetically jumping from one thing to the next. And we don't step back and think, is there a better way to do this? Is there a smarter way to do this? We just don't put enough time into that thinking, that innovation because it's non-billable or it's not productive or whatever, but that's where you get leaps in productivity and you know effectiveness and all of that. So I'm, I, I can't stand the annual performance appraisal. Boy, I would love to get rid of that. One thing you touched on that I think is kind of interesting and I think more of a trend lately is that like in standing out for the common employee, it's like you, know, you can do it just by working hard and really caring about your job and, and caring about how you perform and everything else. Because I think there's such a, in today's you know modern working world, I think there's a certain sense of entitlement that comes with an employee. Like, oh, people are like, oh, I work at Google. Now give me all this rather than, you know, right. concentrate yeah, there, on their own performance. There is a sense of entitlement. The world owes me a living. We kind of see this with the UBI debate, right? Just because I'm alive, I should get a grand a month from Andrew Yang. Well, I got news for you. The world was here first. It doesn't owe you a living, but no, you got to prove yourself. And in my world, there'd be a negative minimum wage because I think about an attorney is a great example or a young actress or actor. What would it be worth to be in one of Steven Spielberg's movies? You know, why couldn't I pay him? to be in one of his movies, even as a stand-in or a very small part, I'd be willing to pay him. The way He wouldn't yeah. pay me a wage, I'd pay him, right? I want You've got to prove yourself. You've got to prove your own value. And that's why I think it's better if you think of yourself not as an employee, what am I entitled to, but I'm a business and I have to provide to this law firm more value than what they're paying me. And if you think about it that way, then there's probably more ways you can add that value and you'll be more successful. Plus, you'll just have a better attitude. Because I think, Matt, at the end of the day, attitude is a lot. You can, have, you can be a great attorney, but if you're an SOB to your team members, <laughs> your colleagues, the customers. So many of us are, too. You're not going to last. <laughs> you're not going to be pleasant to be around. You could be one of those Dr. Houses. I mean, I loved House. It was my favorite show. But, I mean, House was a phenomenal doctor. I'd want him in the background diagnosing me, but I wouldn't want him to touch me. Yeah, he's awful. But, but, you know, he's genius. Now, you might have room in your firm for one of those guys, but not a whole flock of them. <laughs> yeah, totally. Ron, Thank you so much for coming on our show today, man. You gave us amazing value. <laughs> amazing oh, value. Good, I didn't good. think we could talk about all this for so long as we did. Man, we run way up on the time. This has been a fascinating conversation, thanks to you. How can people find out more about what you do and your books? Seven? Seven books? Seven, yeah. Just give you the easiest way to get me. I mean, obviously, you can find me on LinkedIn. The best way to get me is thesoulofenterprise.com, which is my radio show and, and podcast. Coming up on seven years, I think next week, July 4th, 
on for seven years and we've got shows on pricing talking to pricing experts so that's where i'd love for people to go is the soul of enterprise and on the soul of enterprise website you can click on books and you'll see all seven of my books and i'll just mention two of them if you're a professional my recommendation would be you read my latest book which is implementing value pricing and if you're a business owner or thinking about starting a business then pick up pricing on purpose, which is written for more of a business audience rather than a professional audience. They are available on Amazon. Most of them, except one, are available on Kindle. Thank you so much, Ron. We'd love to have you. And hopefully we'll get you on again for another great topic. You just brought a ton of knowledge and ton of value today. Thanks, you guys. It was a lot of fun. And yeah, we'd love to come back. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Free Retiree Show. So long for now. Securities offered through Securities America Incorporated, member of FINRA, www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed for the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. Lee Michael Murphy is a investment advisor representative with Securities America Advisors, a registered investment advisor. The Free Retiree, Securities America Advisors, and Securities America Incorporated are separate entities. Career Advisor Sergio Patterson, Attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Securities America Advisors or Securities America Incorporated. Securities America Advisors, Securities America Incorporated, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. The content heard in this podcast is not intended to be tax, investment, or legal advice and is intended as general guidance only. You should contact your own tax advisor, financial advisor, or attorney to answer questions about your specific situation or needs before acting upon this information. Third-party source information or comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of LinkedIn Incorporated or Microsoft Corporation. The opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.